0: Well, please remain standing as we hear God's word read to us. We will be looking this morning in Acts chapter 20 and the first 12 verses. Hear now the reading of God's word. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Pater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little Comforted the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever. endeavor, let's pray together. Our Father, we pray as your servants, speak, O Lord, for we are listening. We ask in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. Our text this morning, if you were following along it, it opens at the conclusion of a riot a riot that had taken place previously in Ephesus. That's where we were last Lord's Day. And if you remember, Luke says it was no little disturbance. There was a lot of people. There was a big problem, a riot. Perhaps Paul in his writings, if you know him well, maybe something he had in mind when he was writing to Corinth You remember that little verse almost as a throwaway line in 1 Corinthians 15. He's speaking about the resurrection. And what does he say? How do we find such hope in the resurrection? If we did not have hope in the resurrection, then what was my gain dealing, as he would say in verse 32, with the wild beasts of Ephesus? Is he thinking of that riot? Or perhaps later, in 2 Corinthians, he's outlining for the church the many afflictions that he has undergone and at one point gets to the statement of saying he despaired even life itself. That riot was a, a big deal. It was a lot of people opposing the gospel and that's where we begin this morning. It's at the close of that and Paul is about to leave. He's about to set sail He's going to depart, and so he's going to say farewell. He's going to say goodbye, and he's saying goodbye to those at Ephesus. And the best that I can tell as I read and as I study, what you're witnessing here in the first few verses is the conclusion of Paul's pioneering ministry. Not the conclusion of his ministry, But the pioneering ministry, he's actually not going to go on any new missionary journey. He's not going to any new city for the sake of the gospel. Yes, he will be in Rome, but you remember he is imprisoned in Rome. He doesn't make a missionary journey to Rome. Here is the conclusion of Paul's ministry in his pioneering form, taking new ground, as it were, for the kingdom of God amongst the Gentiles. And the best that we can tell, it's not just the conclusion of Paul's missionary journey. This also seems to be the time in which Paul is last leaving Ephesus. He's never going to see this church again. He's never going to see the members by which he has spent nearly three years. Yes, he will see and speak to some of the elders, but not in Ephesus. And so he is about to leave. And he has just experienced, in some short period of time, a riot What would you say if you were about to leave and your lasting memory of them was they rioted against you in the gospel? Paul encourages them. Paul, when saying goodbye, he encourages them. It's challenging that that's how he would finish. That might not be how I finish. I don't even know if I finish that way with my children upon one activity or another. If I'm upset, do I finish with an encouragement? Paul is saying goodbye, and I want to encourage you in what it means to follow Jesus. And so what you're going to witness as Paul leaves and he sets sail, we'll talk about it, what is happening in this book is a shift. Because the pioneering ministry is closing, you're not going to get Luke emphasizing any longer where Paul is going, per se. You're going to get a significant emphasis not on where Paul goes, but on what Paul says. There's going to be several speeches that Paul is going to make before King Agrippa and Festus and Caesar. That's what's going to conclude the study of this book of the Acts of the Apostles. And so he finishes by saying to these people, I want to encourage you. And so when we look at this text this morning, this unforgettable sermon, which of course is not mine, it is Paul's. So if that's where you thought the title came, that's not how I came up with it. You, You might forget many things that I say. But don't forget what Paul is going to say. What could we learn from this text? Three things fruitful ministry, faithful worship, and fueled by the word of God. Fruitful ministry, faithful worship, and fueled by the word of God. It says that Paul has departed. He's leaving for Macedonia. He's going through the regions that he's already gone through. Remember, he's concluded pioneering ministry, so he's not going to a new place. He's going to previous places where he's been, where he's done ministry, and churches have grown and are being strengthened. Paul goes back to those places, places like Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. That is the region of Galatia. And in fact, he even says here, Luke says, that he came to Greece. Greece, the the reference there is to draw your attention to the region of Achaia. That is where Corinth is located. And so Paul is going backwards in his missionary journeys, and he's going to take a look at these cities, these churches. And you might be saying, verses 3 and following, until you get to Troas, Luke, are you... Are you just giving us filler information? Why are you telling us about these people we've never heard before? We won't really talk about them ever again. What's the point of these names and these places? It's a significant journey. If you remember, we said when Paul got there, it was some foot travel of nearly a thousand miles. And what you see early on is there's a plot A plot of the Jews who want to kill Paul and it's a credible intel that says if Paul were to get on the boat it was going to be mostly full of Jews and so it would be easily to kill him and so he decides to go a different direction and here's Paul He's, he's about to travel again on foot a thousand miles none of this is highlighted by Luke it's almost as though he skips over it entirely he gives you a great deal of ministry in Ephesus and then quickly moves on And yet, what you read in those first few verses has great significance, even for you and me. What is taking place in those verses that you perhaps aren't aware of? Well, we don't know the exact amount of time that Paul was in Macedonia there's no time stamp to say he was there one month six months a year we don't know how long he was there but what we do need to know is that when Paul was in Ephesus before his departure he writes a letter he writes a letter to Corinth and you can read something about that letter in first Corinthians five and what he is writing to Corinth is he is saying church You can have nothing to do with the sexually immoral. Don't have anything to do with them. And so he writes a letter to the church at Corinth. Not only is he going to do that, he's going to be visited by some people from Corinth. Stephanus being one of them. And they're going to report to Paul, this is what it's like at the church. Here are the divisions and the problems. And you know Paul's going to write another letter. And you know that as 1 Corinthians This is all taking place while he is in Ephesus or perhaps in Macedonia. And then he's going to write another letter. You can read about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And he calls it a a letter of painful tears. And then he's going to write another letter. And you know that is 2 Corinthians. This is what's going on in these first few verses. Paul has written four letters to the church at Corinth, two in which you hold in front of you. That is 1 and 2 Corinthians. You remember when he was in Corinth, he was there some 18 months. There were some freedoms that he had. He leaves for Ephesus. At some point when he was in Ephesus, he has had to go back to Corinth. That. That's why he calls it a painful visit, and it's why he writes a painful letter. And then he's going to visit them again. You see it in our text this morning. He leaves Macedonia, and he goes to Corinth for three months. By the way, most scholars would believe in that three-month period is when Paul wrote the book of Romans. This is what's taking place when Paul is making his journey back. None of it is highlighted. No matter where Paul goes... No matter what he is experiencing, what is Paul always focusing on? The preaching and teaching of the gospel. He is encouraging these brothers and sisters in the Lord. He wants to share Christ with them. He wants to establish them in the faith. He wants to train them up in the ways of God. And what is the result? The result of that is the list of names. You read about Sopater, he's a, he's a gentleman from Berea. You read about Aristarchus and Secundus, they're from Thessalonica. You read about Gaius from Derby. We do not think that is the same Gaius that we read about in Acts chapter 19. It was a more popular name. Let's call him Danny, that kind of popularity. It's an average name. But there's Gaius in Derby, you've got Timothy and Lystra. Then you read of Tychicus and Trophimus from Asia. What does that mean? You paid close attention, didn't you? Peter, Aristarchus and Secundus, that was Paul's second missionary journey. Gaius and Timothy, that was Paul's first missionary journey. And Tychicus and Trophimus was his third. You see, everywhere Paul went, He preached the gospel and fruit began to be born. You see these men following Christ. We don't know exactly why all of these are chosen. Perhaps they were chosen from their church to be a part of those who are going to give the offering to the church at Jerusalem, the struggling church. They're going to follow with Paul. They'll land in Troas, and their goal is to go to Jerusalem and deliver this offering. Perhaps that is why they are there. They were chosen, selected by the church. But what we're looking at is the results of when the gospel comes and it's at work. It changes the lives of people. And what's more interesting is this is not a unified group, as it were, socioeconomically. This is a very diverse group of people from a bunch of different places and yet unified in the mission of the gospel. They want to see Christ known and so do their churches. You could imagine the struggle of that church. Paul has come, the gospel has been at work. Here are these leaders being raised up, but we're new, we're young, we don't know what to do. And Paul's saying, we got to get ready to leave. And instead of the church saying, but we need all of our leaders. We just got started. They have a very missionary focus and say, it's the kingdom of God. And they send leaders to go with Paul. Oh, it's incredible, isn't it? To see what happens when the gospel is on the move. It always, always produces It's intended purpose. Whether fruit or condemnation, the gospel always works. And we get a fruitful ministry that we see with Paul's life as he's been traveling. But we don't just see a fruitful ministry. We also see something by which he experiences when he gets to Troas. There's a a faithful worship, that list of names, these brothers, they go ahead of him. And they arrive in Troas, and Paul and Luke, they're, they're at Philippi. He's holding back a few days, and he wants to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then he's going to arrive in Troas, and he's going to be in Troas for just a week. And what, what a week. You followed that story, and you thought, now that, that's a mission trip right there. And so we're reading as Paul comes into Troas. What does Luke Tell you on the first day of the week that 's what Luke says in verse seven, as Paul and company is in town it 's the first day of the week it 's Sunday. The people of God have gathered together for corporate worship. this little church that you and I know very little about their consistent pattern is we gather to worship God on the Lord's day. Paul didn't send a letter ahead of time saying, I'm coming in on Sunday, make sure we have church. It's their pattern. They want to worship and know God. And so Paul comes in and Luke says, on the first day of the week, and that is a very significant phrase for you and for me. When you read that there in verse seven, it is the first, if you might say, official title that the scriptures give to Sunday being the first day of the week. You recognize Jews have been operating in a one in seven cycle since its origin, but they worshiped on Saturday. And here, Luke is saying on the first day of the week. Why is he saying on the first day of the week? Well, if you know anything about his gospel, and even in fact, in John's gospel, what happens on the first day of the week? the resurrection of Jesus. And John's gonna take it one step further. In Revelation chapter one, it's not just the first day of the week. It's the Lord's day. I was standing amidst his churches on the Lord's day. I was worshiping God on the Lord's day. He wasn't having to convince a group of people, a one in seven, But there was a shift in its understanding of the Sabbath. There was a shift from Saturday morning, perhaps you might say Saturday evening. We don't know exactly what time period we're looking at here. There's a little bit of a debate. When they say Sabbath, first day of the week, are we talking Saturday midnight to Sunday midnight? That was typically a more Jewish mindset. Are we talking about a Roman mindset, which would be Sunday midnight to Sunday midnight? We don't know but the point is these dear brothers and sisters worship God corporately on the Lord's day and here comes Paul to preach because they love the word of God now I want to make you aware of one thing I think Paul or Luke is trying to use Paul in you remember he, he was in Philippi. He decided not to go with everyone to Troas and he wanted to stay back. Why? He wanted to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now you probably read that and thought, oh, I've heard that before. I think that's, isn't that Passover, I think Luke is actually trying to tip you off to something. I think what Paul was doing at Philippi was to say, hey church, we're gonna celebrate Easter together. You see, that's unleavened bread. It, it comes during the time period of Passover. And what is Passover? It's the Passover lamb. And remember, we've already given you some history here. Paul's already written 1 Corinthians. And what do we learn about 1 Corinthians? Or he says in 1 Corinthians 5, Christ is the fulfillment of the Passover meal. These people know about Passover and Paul's already told them Jesus fulfills that. And so he comes into Philippi and he says, brethren, let's have Easter together. Let me preach to you about the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. You could imagine how difficult that would be, traditionally speaking, to make a change. That for hundreds of years they've been doing Passover and then to come in and go, well, stop doing that. I don't even respond to correction that fast when you say, Danny, stop it. I normally have a few questions. And so you can imagine how long and how difficult it would be to shift gears and go, Wait so we're not celebrating Passover anymore? We're we're now doing Easter. It's not going to take a one service kind of thing. And here comes Paul trying to help them shift their eyes. Don't look in the past. Look up. You have a great day of celebration because the Lord Jesus is ruling and reigning. He's risen from the dead. And so he leaves Philippi and comes to Troas having preached the death and resurrection of Christ and he worships again with them. They partake of the Lord's Supper and I think a fair reading of that text would say they probably partook of the Lord's Supper and had an ordinary meal. You get the definite article in Greek in verse 11 if you're, if you're one of those scholarly people who want to know why. And so I think Paul's coming in and he's saying we're going to have another Easter here and we're going to be reminded of what Jesus has done it 's a powerful picture in fact actually the Reformation uses this story to help understand why and how do we partake of the Lord's Supper because if you read the text carefully, how does this happen well Paul begins to preach and then they have the lord's Supper the Reformation what they were trying to say is this is not a this is not a superstitious meal Calvin. Do not err on the side of magic. Do not err on the side of a mirage. It's meaningless. What they're trying to say is we take of the Lord's Supper after we have first eaten of the word of God ourselves. Paul preaches to them the truth and then they have a right understanding of what it means to take the Lord's Supper. And so the Reformation says that is how communion is to be done. It's not to be some special service by which the only thing you get is bread and a cup. You first must have some kind of explanation and expounding of the word of God. Eat first of the written word, then eat of the living word. And so that's what the Reformation does. But that's what these people are doing. They want to come together and worship. They want to hear God's word, and then they want to partake of it. It's such a powerful picture that they gather on a Sunday evening for worship. It's so important to them. You only have 52 of them, you see, in a year. And they do whatever they can to be a part. You've got a fruitful ministry. You've got faithful worship. And then lastly, you have something being fueled, all of it being fueled by the Word of God. How or why were they brought to a faithful worship? I do think it's impossible for you to read this passage and not see the absolute necessity of the Scriptures. You cannot read this passage and fail to see how important and vital the Word of God is for you personally. And it is for you as a church. It's promise it's provision, it's, it's protection. You and I need the word of God. It, it fuels worship, it fuels ministry. We need God's word and how can you see it? You read it rightly. Some of you were probably prepared to laugh when you read that story. You thought certainly that didn't happen. Yes, you read it right. What takes place in Paul's preaching He comes in, he begins to preach on the Lord's day, probably day six of his travel because he's going to leave the next day. And he has a very prolonged sermon. Before you evaluate mine, let's evaluate Paul's. Luke gives you a timestamp. He preaches until midnight. Paul is preaching and preaching and preaching over and over and over again. That's Luke's nice way of saying he went a little bit past his allotted time. And what takes place as Paul is preaching to this church? They're gathered. I'm sure they didn't come knowing the bulletin saying we'll be here till midnight. They came to hear Paul preach and he begins to tell them of Christ. And you can imagine the scene. Here we all are. We're packed. Shoulder to shoulder, there's no room. It's dark outside. We don't have light switches. Praise God for air conditioning, but they didn't have that. It's late. They've already been at work for most of the day. These Christians didn't get this Sunday off. You remember, they live amongst Jewish people Saturday is when you take it off. They've worked all day long, and here they are, late. They've got lamps. In fact, actually, it's called torches. So don't think about your little lamp in your home. You're talking about torches. It's hot, shoulder to shoulder, and Eutychus finds the best seat in the house. At least it seems that way. He sits by the window. He's a young boy, young man. Keep reading, it says, boy. Probably 8 to 14 years old. And Paul is preaching his socks off. And before you judge Eutychus, I want you to know I stand up here and see a lot of things. (laughs) It happens to everybody. You've had a late night, kids didn't go to bed. Or in my household, they wake up way before they're supposed to. Maybe you're sick, you were traveling. There's any number of reasons, and and you can imagine it. It's hot. You've pinched yourself a few times. If you're married, you've been pinched. You've fidgeted. For some of you, you've been so desperate you started taking notes. And then you say to yourself, My eyes are heavy. If I could just relieve the pressure just a moment, I'll make it. So you close your eyes, and then you hear, let's stand and sing, okay? You understand, do not judge Eutychus. It's very, very hard. He falls asleep, and he fell down three flights of stairs, three stories, and he's dead. Now, you know what that scene would have been like. They're in the room. They would have heard him hit the ground. You would have heard screaming. And Paul would have stopped immediately. He runs down. You see something of 1 Kings, Elisha and Elijah coming to resurrect someone, or Peter, we studied about him with Dorcas. And Paul Picks him up. He's holding him in his arms. He's dead. And then Paul announces, no, he's not. He is alive. There is a resurrection that has just happened before their very eyes. How incredible. How incredible. You went from perhaps one of the scariest sights to being drawn into a position of absolute praise. Did you see what happened next? You know, Paul doesn't call 911. By the way, that's what we would do. So for the attorneys here, we don't have waivers for membership. If you fall down, we can't help you, but we will call 911. Paul doesn't call 911. Paul doesn't even come down and say, Well, let me pray and we'll go home. You read it rightly. They went right back upstairs and Paul started preaching again. Do you understand how important the Word of God is that they were so undistracted and undeterred that even death itself could not interrupt the worship of God? They wanted so much to be close to God and to see Him that even when Eutychus would fall to his death, would be raised from the dead, they don't go home. Eutychus comes back. He doesn't go to the doctor. He comes right back into worship. And they go until daybreak. They loved the Word of God. And I think it's important that we recognize that because we live in a day where we could probably say we are spiritually sluggish. That the world will talk you to sleep or perhaps better stated, the world will talk you to death if you listen to it. We don't want the word of God as though these people did. Do you remember the C.S. Lewis book, Screwtape Letters? You've got a senior devil, with an apprentice, wormwood. Do you remember what he tells his apprentice? The safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft, underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. We need to be awakened. We need to be summoned. It's not a casual thing when we have a call to worship. It's saying to you, Wake up! Look at who you're here to worship. He's called you by name. Come, eat, and enjoy. Look up. Be fueled by the Word of God. And if I'm honest, many of us need to be awakened. You need to be woken up from a spiritual slumber. Some of you need to be brought to life because you're dead. And Jesus does both of them. That's what his word is for. Read it, digest it, and enjoy a full and vibrant life. It's what the word of God is here for. Do you hear the word of God that way? Do you understand the joys of His revelation found in Genesis to the book of Revelation? You're going to read it and learn that God is holy. And we are utterly unrighteous. And only in the Word of God will you find Jesus as the remedy for sin. You cannot be awakened by anything else. You cannot be brought to life by anything else. You need Christ and he is revealed to us in the pages of scripture. We need to hear the word of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his homiletics class that he taught in Germany, he had a practice. He would have his students preach and what he would do is when they would preach, he would put all of his books away, all of his notepads, all of his pens and pencils away. He would sit down and he would listen. No matter how good or bad the student's sermon was, he said, I'm going to listen because as soon as you read God's Word, I need to receive it. I need to hear it. I want to hear it. And so I'm going to be a student for a moment and receive the Word of God. Is that how you and I enter this place? You remember I told you at the very beginning, Paul is about to say farewell to this church. And what does he do? He he encourages them. Did you see how our passage ends in verse 12? And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. That word encouragement and that word comforted is actually the same Greek word. It's parakaleo, the paraclete. That is the Holy Spirit That. God sends the Spirit. That's why Jesus says, it's good that I leave so my Spirit can come. And what will the Spirit of God do? He will encourage you. He will comfort you by His Word. We receive encouragement and comfort from God on high by His Word. You see, coming to Christ, eternal life is not the end. It's the beginning of blessing. If you are a born-again believer, this is one of the greatest hours of your week, or at least I pray it is. You receive all the benefits and inheritance of the Son of God because you are bound wholly to Him because of His work. We want to be a church who has a very firm commitment to worship God. Morning and evening, we want people to taste and see that God is good. We want to to have a firm commitment to ministries being founded upon the Word and teaching the Word of God, but we want to find our greatest encouragement and fuel from the Word of God. I'll close with a story. Martin Luther had a dream, not that Martin Luther, the one who lived far earlier. He had a dream one night. It was a pretty scary dream, to be honest. He is dreaming about Satan and some of the demons, and the demons are coming to Satan, and they are reporting on how things go. And so one where you might say the first demon reports to Satan, I saw Christians, they were, they were passing through the desert, and so I let loose a host of lions, and they ravaged them. They killed them all, they took them out. And Satan says, what about that? You took their life, but I want their soul. And so the second demon, he gives a report and he says, "Um, but I saw Christians, they were on a ship. They were sailing on the sea. And so I sent forth the greatest storms and they were utterly obliterated. They drowned and died. And you imagine what Satan would say to him. What about that? I want their soul. And so the third demon said, for 10 years, I've been working on this Christian that he might fall into a deep sleep. And Satan's response or according to Luther was the corridors of hell rang with shouts of malignant triumph. Brothers and sisters, we need to be awake and you will only, only be awakened If you would but read and meditate on the Word of God, that is the unforgettable sermon, is to read the living Word and let it pierce your life. Your marriage is dependent upon it. Your parenting is dependent upon it. Your profession is dependent upon it. And above all of it, your very life is dependent upon it. Be awake by being fueled by God's word, faithful in your worship, and watch out. You'll see a great ministry before your eyes. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we thank you that our life is not our own. For as Paul would say, we are dead in our trespasses and sin, and we had to be made alive through Christ Jesus, and that was a work of grace, a work that was done outside of us, being applied internally to us, that we could not boast, and yet we would proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. Help us, O Lord. For those who would hear this day and are spiritually sleeping, awaken them. Let the Word dwell richly in their lives. And for those who are dead, we entrust them to you that you would bring forth salvation and bring them to life. Fixate their eyes on Christ Jesus. And therefore, might our application even this day be Help us to be faithful and worship. There is no sight like the sight of Jesus. And so might we see Him and therefore praise Him. And we ask it in His name. Amen.